Welcome to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight we're listening to a conversation with Dr. David Martin and Pastor Brad Cummings. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And tonight we are going to have a fantastic conversation with Dr. David Martin and Pastor Brad Cummings. This is one of these interviews that I would, you rarely get a dynamic like this, and I would refer to this as an interview of Unplugged. And if you're familiar with the concept of Unplugged, uh, Kurt Cobain Unplugged is probably one of the most famous concerts where literally you just kind of strip away all the electric guitar stuff and you know, all the mixing, and it's just purely him playing guitar on a stage surrounded with people, transparent, nothing to hide. This is another dimension of Dr. Martin tonight that I think you're going to be blown away with. He is an amazing man, an amazing intellect, and has an amazing mind, and really understands truly what this fight is that we're confronted with. And so we'll dig into that in just a moment. First off, MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com forward slash Bards is the homepage for Bards Nation. All sorts of great specials there. You can use get all those specials with your promo code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, BARDS, B-A-R-D-S. So head on over to MyPillow.com forward slash BARDS and take advantage of some amazing savings, both all on, diff, on all the different sites with the same promo code. It's the MyPillow site, the MyStore site, and the FrankSpeech.com site. Incredible savings across all those platforms. Some of the featured savings, buy one, uh, I guess it's not buy one, get one free. It's buy one and get one. Yeah, get one free Giza sheets, 40% off on my slippers, uh, the three-piece towel set for $39.99. Incredible savings across the whole site. And, of course, this is a company run by one of America's great CEOs, patriots, and a man who has liberty and Christ in his heart. So head on over to MyPillow.com forward slash Bards, promo code Bards. Also, The Founders Bible thefoundersbible.com. Use your promo code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, at the, in the coupon section to get 20% off. This is literally what I consider to be the Bible for our time. It is an NASB 1995 edition. It is an incredible uh, version of the Bible, very well composed. It's literally an heirloom Bible for the family. I gave away dozens of them for Christmas. Love the Bible. It's a beautiful gift, and it's a beautiful thing to have. should also go in your prep bag, too. Thefoundersbible.com. Use your promo code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, and really experience not only God's word, but the history of our country through the our founding fathers who used the word as a living language. Finally, Expedition, X-P-E-D, ExpeditionCoffee.com. That's the BARDS coffee. It's a fantastic coffee. Head on over to ExpeditionCoffee.com and also check out the whole ecosystem of products that are designed to restore our health sovereignty. Those are start with the health with the Expedition Coffee, which is designed to give you a mental focus and strength throughout the entire day. We have Immune XP, which is an immune booster based on pine cone extract with high levels of vitamin C. 
You have the Gut Health Triad, which is designed to heal and seal your gut to remove leaky gut syndrome, which is so much of a health problem for most Americans that are eating the normal American diet, which is not healthy. We also have Pure 47, which is the most refined silver extract currently on the market that can isolate all the pathogens in your body, including the full complement of SARS-CoV nonsense that they've been throwing at us. And finally, Earth, which is a full body supplement, one scoop a day, mixed like a shake, drink, and it's all your body needs for the full nutrient mix. So again, Expedition, X-P-E-D, ExpeditionCoffee.com. Now, Patriots, before I begin tonight, a word of caution. This um, interview is one hour and 30 minutes. It's a long interview. There was no way I was going to cut it down because it's a continuous conversation. And this is one of these interviews that you need to listen to the whole interview. If you break off at pieces and points, it it's not going to all come together. So whatever you do, if you have to break off early or you have to break off to do other things, that's normal. But make sure and spend time to listen to this whole interview. I don't typically do interviews at an hour and a half. I try to respect people's time at under an hour. But this is one that's important. And in in my opinion, it's one of the more important interviews I've done or conversations that we've had, especially with all that goes on here. Dr. Martin is a brilliant mind. What most people don't know is when when his upbringing, he was required in his youth to translate every day a page of the Bible into Greek and from Greek to English. He has a mastery of about three or four languages, Greek, Latin, just to name a few. He is he truly knows scripture. He knows what he's dealing with, and he has been dealing with some of the biggest, most powerful people in the world. So it's a very insightful interview, and so we're not going to delay this anymore. Allow me to introduce to you Dr. David Martin and Pastor Brad Cummings. Well, Patriots, I'll tell you, I'm very excited this morning because I have two of probably what I would consider to be two of the most important minds in the country together. Well, along with me, of course. But anyway, we have... <laughs> where two or three are gathered. <laughs> better. Nice. And, and uh, that's uh, Dr. David Martin and Pastor Brad Cummings. And so we're going to have an amazing conversation today. Really look forward to it. Dr. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Brad as well. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Oh, lovely to be here. So... Dr. Martin, one of the things that you have been very clear on, and it's I hope people have heard this message, that the only way that we're going to get through this is to, really is to stop this vax. And you've had a very clear understanding as to a process to get there. I think most people, I mean, for me, the process is simple, just say no. But I think there's a greater aspect to that as well, which is rooted in the emergency use authorization. What's What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so historically, I think it's worth going back to 1984, uh, realizing that Anthony Fauci, um, Alex Cesar, and and the cabal of the drug dealing population that decided that the picture of humanity that they wanted to see promoted was a picture that said that we need to use technology delivered under the guise of vaccination. And I want to be really clear on the fact these are not public health injections. These have nothing to do with infection or transmission. This has to do with a decision that was made to take a term, vaccination, using the legacy of the 1905 Jacobson case in the Supreme Court, um, use that term as a way of instituting a technology dependency 
that would be injected into humans, which ultimately would lead to downregulating the population, which is a technically correct word, but what they're really talking about is interrupting reproduction and killing people. Uh, the fact of the matter is this was a eugenics program. It was started in 1914 by the Carnegie Foundation. It was run out of, uh, out of the Cold Spring Harbor Lab up in the Northeast. The eugenics office still runs there. So just in case we're worried about the, maybe I'm making an allegation that's supposed to be 1930s or something like that. It's still there, Cold Spring Harbor Labs. You can look it up. The eugenics office is still there. And the decision was made to make vaccines a population control platform. Oh, my God. So, so let's get really, really clear on my point. My point is that when Fauci invented the entire pandemic scare model, the model was built to make a universal vaccine platform accessible to the American population. And be very clear that the reason why the 1986 act was passed was to lay the foundation stone for the ultimate eugenics of our society. The reason why you shield a drug dealing industry from liability is so you can kill people with impunity. That's why you do it. Wow. Yeah, it's stunning. When you mention the eugenics program, does that take us back to Miskatatuck as well? In the- so, so, yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. If you go back throughout history, we, we've decided in many instances in history that there are populations that we've, de- we've deemed to be undesirable. Um, so we can go back and we can look at how people treated, you know, communities, which were the first nations here in, in the United States. We can go back and look at what happened in the Portuguese empire in India and in Qatar and Kuwait and all these kind of places. The idea of undesirable populations is something which has been a scourge of the human social narrative for now thousands of years. The idea that there's a a version of humanity that's okay and then the version that we need to get rid of. And, And the problem with the version we need to get rid of is they're always standing on something we've decided we want to take. Something is in their possession we want. And so the determination is not that there is, I mean, go back to 1776. You know, everybody talks about the the mythology around what we think of as the founding of this country, but you fail to realize that the book, the Bible that was written in 1776 was Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. You know, we focus on the couple paragraphs in the Declaration of Independence. We don't focus on the fact that what this country was founded to do was be the first country founded on the industrial structure laid down in the Bible of Adam Smith. And that, if we really go back and look at the history, we realize that's the reason why trade routes were so important. That's the reason why the intolerable acts were the things that were the things setting in motion a lot of the actions that took place in the Northeast. The blockades of the harbors in Philadelphia and in Charleston and Boston, those blockades were all about control of the supply of industry supply lines. That's what this was about. And we don't pay attention to the economics that say that in 1776, the drug dealing industries that built America, the Virginia Company and the British East India Company, by the way, 
they they currently live as Bro's Welcome. I mean, the company still exists. Those companies that were the drug dealing companies that founded this country knew they could hijack the experiment with the gospel of Adam Smith in 1776. And that's exactly what they did. And eugenics was a necessary utility. It was a cost of doing business. And that's the reason why we called people who didn't look like us, who didn't dress like us, who didn't eat like us. We called them heathen and we said it was okay to kill them. Brad and I have been working on this model and kind of just discussing at this point, doing some research around the Hudson Bay Company, yep. which has my absolute intrigue because that's a shadow government almost behind the entire settlement process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it also begs the question of what Lewis and Clark really did because they already had the routes already mapped back to the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. So, so the Hudson Bay Company is a derivative, by the way, of, of Queen Victoria's mandate that put in place in 1604, the British East India Company mandate. Um, they, they all have a legacy, and the legacy, unfortunately, has a legacy that exists using the statutes in 1604 and 1608 that exist in perpetuity. So for those of you not familiar with that term, that means forever, um, and forever hasn't changed. And nothing about the treaties that ended the revolution, nothing about the Treaty of Ghent changed the fact that forever is still going. That's, that's part of forever. And, and treaty law supersedes... Yep. Laws and nations. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, so they're, they're a higher good, good news, bad news. But yeah, we're, we are we are still living that. So so the Hudson Bay Company is an interesting one in that they specifically had two features which were rather unique and discreet that actually made them somewhat interesting and different from the Virginia Company and the British East India Company. While the Virginia and British East India Company were focused on colonial and maritime um, issues about supply routes, uh, supply chains, and and colonial land conquests. The Hudson Bay Company was very much into the manipulation of of um, commodities. They they were very very much controlling the supply and logistics lines of the production of commodities, and so they have a very nuanced role. The reason why they're worth noting is they also were the agent through which a lot of what became structured finance was born. So Hudson Bay Company was where an enormous amount of what we now call contract indemnity, which is a giant class of, of the economy, which actually runs the economy, that none of us know about. Um, we don't know about counter trade agreements. We don't know about bond and sureties. We don't know about things. And these things, by the way, for people listening, these are things that exist in the trillions of dollars, not billions. These are trillions of dollars of agreements enshrined in things like the Bretton Woods Agreement, enshrined in things like GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, which gave rise to the World Trade Organization. All of these things are things that have survived through what we call the modern economic reformations, but all of them have their roots going back to 1604. Can you dig into a little bit? deeper on that. This reminds me of a book called The Tontine, which was written in the early 1900s, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yep. Can you can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah. So in, in, in modern times, we need to kind of understand that the that the um, relationships that are currently dictating the way in which the world works are largely built around structured finance. Uh, that structured finance is based out of Zurich and mostly Zurich. I mean, there's People that would argue that Bermuda plays a role in it. 
but Bermuda plays a facing role. The structure comes out of Europe and Austria. Um, these are legacy um, contract holders that actually regulate trades of goods and services around the world and have done it, by the way, since the Roman Empire. So give you a sense of how far back this goes. This goes back to the Roman Empire. It goes back to the fourth century, which is when the decision was made to say that the commodity trading and geopolitical controls of the Roman Empire are going to happen in Constantinople and the banking and finance were going to happen in Italy. And if we go back and look at that division of labor, what happened was the repositories for enormous amounts of the contracts that make the skids of commerce work, that grease the skids of global commerce, those contracts were going to ultimately be controlled and adjudicated out of Austria and out of Switzerland. They are still there today. They're in companies that we call Swiss Re and Munich Re and Zurich Re and Excel and all of the companies that are the ones that control the indemnity of making sure that the fluidity of trade continues to work. What has happened is that we built a series of fundamental general agreements on contracts. And that's the reference you made to Tontine and other things. We made an agreement that said that there was going to be a standard format by which a supra-governmental, meaning something that's not you know, subject to common regulations and laws, essentially just counterparty agreements, was going to be the way in which the macro economy worked. And the majority of people think that they're participating in the economy because they have money or because they have stocks or they have bonds or whatever else. And those things are merely the afterthought window dressing of irrelevance, basically, living in an illusion on top of what's really driving things, which are agreements that live at the base. And those agreements are all structured finance, offtake agreements, which have long, long, long durations. In fact, many of them have multi-hundred year durations. This is the realm of the puppet masters. Correct. These are the ones who are controlling they are the, the ones that resources. Run, they are the ones that rule the world. They are the ones that have ruled the world since, you know, I say since the Roman Empire. The irony is the Roman Empire is still alive and well. We just call it Great Britain and we call it Zurich and we call it Austria. Um, we're but, we're but, still living under the tyranny of their control. Yes. So I always look at the Catholic Church as a rebranding of the Roman Empire and a transition to the global banking. Is that a fair assessment? So in part, um, in many respects, the Catholic Church, as we currently understand it, has been a cover for what I would call the the um, asset reserves. Um, in, in fact, you know, what we know is that there's an enormous, enormous amount of control, largely in land holding. Um, that's the part that nobody talks about. Uh, the, the Catholic Church as a land owner and a land holder um, is, is an immense, immense asset holder. And that serves as a reserve basis, if you will, for the underlying structure of what was basically, you know, 1800 years of colonial conquest. And the Catholic Church is, is the holding company. Think of it as the custodian of, of the assets. The fact of the matter is um, more, more disconcerting is the fact that the Catholic Church, in many respects, is the decoy that people pay attention to that actually distracts people from looking at where the real tyranny lives. And the real tyranny lives in Austria, and it really lives in Switzerland. 
And I'm amazed at how many people, you know, pay very little attention to the fact that as recently, by the way, as the Second World War, we still called it the Australia-Hungary Empire, which was the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> um, and it was called the Holy Roman Empire um, up until the inconvenience of the, of the last century. So, so the no notion that we have somehow transcended um, what, by the way, there is not a shred of civil or political or any other evidence that says that we've done anything to alter the persistence of the Roman state. Um, is unfortunately one of the giant pieces of arrogance and ignorance that has enslaved us. And the cool thing is we get trapped in conversations about face mask wearing or injections or whatever else, failing to understand that all of those are decoys. The real issues are we're still slaves to the Roman Empire. It's very interesting because you mentioned property ownership, which obviously is central to a lot of power. And if we're going to roll to the modern church version of that in decoy, I'd say it'd be the Golden Arches or the Holy Church of Ronald McDonald. Yeah, there you go. They are one of the largest landholders on the globe. So really what you're kind of mapping out, which is interesting, is that's another decoy. I mean, the Big Mac literally drive through. That's yeah. the decoy for the real motive, which is land holding. Is that fair? Yeah, it's exactly right. And, and, and we have to remember that you know, there are a couple assets that are the things that really control human existence. One is land and one is water. Not surprisingly, we've allowed water to be now 80% corporatized, meaning that we have the surface rights, controls, the rights of the, water. you know, something that is as universal as God gives us rain has now been something that has been appropriated um, in about 80% of the world. So, so we literally have um, taken the uniform, I mean, think about this. The Bible tells us that the rain will fall on the just and the unjust, but the Bible unfortunately failed to point out that um, though it falls on the just and the unjust, it is owned by corporations. Um, that, that part was left out of, of the Bible reference, unfortunately. Um, apparently when Moses was coming off the top of the mountain, the 11th commandment was, and water shall be owned by corporations. Um, but listen, land holding and water holding are really the, 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 the keystones of the ultimate manipulation of the human experience. Because if you control those things, you dictate what can be grown, where it can be grown. You dictate where somebody can live, who can live, how they can live. You can dictate all sorts of things about the conditions of existence. And by doing that, you ultimately insert into the human experience an agency of control that it is so ubiquitous that you don't understand that the moment you've turned the, the tap on in your house, you actually have shackled yourself to the enslavery of an empire that's now two and a half thousand years old. Oh, my gosh. Well, and that brings in. Hey, Doc, can, can, can I hijack a please, question? Please. Go for it. What, what do you look at? as the true essence of what determines wealth and resources? Because it seems as if we've been forced into a model of scarcity yep. by puppet masters with greed who control those things like commodities. Yep. And, and we're at the very tiny little end, like the little beggar boys saying, can I have some more, please? Yeah, right, exactly. So, so what really is the essence of wealth? So, so, so you want my definition? Yes, I do. Okay, so this, oh, is, yes. this is the Dave definition of wealth. Um, so my definition of wealth is the ability to have 100% utilitarian extraction of value without exterminating the option for anyone else to have the same experience. 
So in other words, I'll give you a, a very simple example. If I'm watching the sunrise, you know, I love the sunrise, yeah, yeah. right? If I'm watching the sunrise, a hundred percent of my experience is my experience. If you stand next to me I and watch the, the same, same sunrise, yeah. it turns out that you have your hundred percent experience, but hasn't diminished but it hasn't diminished mine. And here's the crazy thing, people. Wealth is what happens when we watch it together. Because what happens when oh, we wow. watch it together is we actually create, we create energy, right? And we've been told the Newtonian sciences that, that, you know, matter can't be created or destroyed. That's, that's not true in a scarcity defined world. That's true. But in a real world, which is when, God has created. When, when we are standing next to each other, we're watching the sunrise together and the joy we experience because we had the fellowship of the experience sharing stuff. That is wealth. Wealth wow. is the emancipation of the simple commodity transformed by the experience of its utility. Okay, I just hang grenade went off in my head. <laughs> yeah, right. So, <laughs> but but how cool, how cool is this? Right. The reason why, the reason why we don't talk about it this way is because we've been told that wealth is the friction coefficient of the inefficiency of exchange. Because listen, I'll tell you a very simple story. Um, Germans in the 1920s and 30s went all across the Pacific and decided that they were going to figure out how to use coconut. You know, it turns out that if you harvest a coconut from a palm tree, say in Papua New Guinea, which is where they had a lot of palm trees, courtesy of the Catholic German Catholic Church, you, you have all these palm trees. And, and so what you do if you're Germany is you take these beautiful coconuts that come out of the tree, you do what's called finger cutting, which is you, you, take, the, you take the meat out of the, the flesh out of the coconut, and then you dry it and you steam it and you smoke it and you desiccate it, and then you send it back to Germany as toasted dried coconut. So in the 1920s, you get a thing called copra, which is a, a, it's a brown oil. It's brown because the copra, which is what they call the dried coconut, is now dried, desiccated, and often heated, so it's actually discolored. So you get this brown oil, you get this brown shredded stuff, and and to Europe, that's what coconut is. Oh my God! You know what? You know what coconut is? If you're on a beach in I don't know Samoa or Tonga or Fiji or Papua New Guinea, coconut is this white, fleshy, right. like beautiful, amazing, sweet, A little refreshing, um, drink, refreshing please. thing. And so what, what happened was the Germans told the people in the Pacific that the only way they could get value for coconuts was to harvest them, dry them, burn them, desiccate them, press them into this brown oil and ship it into the industry. What they did was they actually turned a commodity called coconut oil, which is one of the largest commodities in the first 30 years of the 20, 20th century. They took the natural coconut and turned it into an industrial defiled oil. And that's what we sold as a commodity. So we controlled the defiled nature. Tell that to your Trader Joe's metrosexual 22 year old <laughs> who's paying like $5 for a little canister of coconut water now. Tell them that, that in the first three decades of the 20th century, that was nice. actually thrown away. 
nice. because the Germans decided that coconut That's water was a waste product. Listen to me. Like that was a waste product because they decided they needed to desiccate coconut so that they could ship it more efficiently from Papua New Guinea to freaking Germany. Now, think about what I just said. That was technological improvement. No, it wasn't. No, that's the major it's defiling. It's defiling the natural order. And every single thing we call wealth today in the modern narrative is a defiling of the ordained order. Mm. And then the management of the scarcity of the defiled order. You have just described Marx's historical materialism and the fact that all human relations are based on a commodified exchange. That's brilliant. Yep, and that's and and, and, and that's the that's the problem. And, and unfortunately, see, we pretend like the problem right now. We pretend like the problem is what people are injecting or what people are putting on their faces or whatever else. Listen, I'm not saying it's not a problem, but the problem is we've accepted the defiling of creation as the oh, prerequisite bingo. bingo for human engagement. And if we want to do anything to redeem our experience of living, we have to stop defiling creation. Wow, that's fantastic. Because that's, you just you took right there, David, I just love that, is that's the center point of what everything Marx talked about in Das Capital 1, 2, and 3 which yep. is yep. all about the process of defiling creation. That's, that is absolutely fantastic. No question. No so question. you've hit something here very interesting. And it, is that what we were supposed to talk oh, about? We're right on track. <laughs> no, we're, just, we're, we're just going in the ozone, dude. I, 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 I got so many questions. This is great. Well, Brad, go. Put one out there. So, because what you just described, I end up going, like, that's what we have been enslaved into, a scarcity mindset. Yeah that isn't really dealing with the essence of what God created. No. So we had a discussion last night, a little bit about, um, we have this penchant, this love for the word freedom. Yeah. And yet you flipped that on its head for yeah. me in a way that, you know, I sat there going like, yeah, what we really need to talk about is liberty. Yeah. But, but that's just not part of our equation. Could you unfold that a little bit? Because I yeah. know this is going to um, spark something in, in Scott. Yeah, so, so if we go back to Plato's cave, the allegory of the cave, remember in the allegory of the cave, what we have is a story that says that reality is essentially a controlled narrative. There's fire, there's a wall, there are magicians with various sticks and icons on one side of the wall, and then there are people, humanity, chained to the dark side of the wall. And what people are seeing is this projection of shadows on the wall, and they're told that that's what reality is. And in Plato's cave allegory, what you do is you have somebody who finally gets free of the chains and goes out and sees that it's theater and then sees that it's a fire and then sees a shaft of light and crawls out and actually sees reality, sees trees and birds and horses and all the stuff. And he comes back down into the cave to tell the people on the opposite side of the cave wall, hey, there's this whole world out there. And what do the people with the chains do? They kill him. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they kill him because they say he's mad and that's not reality. Now, what's the, why am I saying that? What, I, what I'm saying is we have been seduced by an idolatry of freedom because freedom requires the existence of the aversive stimulus. You have to be free from something. And the minute, by the way, pick anything, right? 
if, if you want to lose weight, you will stay fat. Hate to break it to you, but you'll stay fat. If you want to choose health, wow. if you want to choose vitality, if you want to choose to live in alignment with the beautiful creation of the body that you've been entrusted, you will actually gain health. But if your motivation is, I'm going to lose weight, A, you're not going to, and B, you're probably going to hate yourself more and you're going to make life for everybody else around you miserable. Here, here's the problem. The problem is if we are trying to be free from, we are carrying the energy of the aversive stimulus into every part of our life. And what everything about the gospel was, about everything about life is, about everything creation is, is to say no. Yeah. Be at liberty. Realize that you've been entrusted with much. You'll be accountable for more. And that puts you into a role that says, I am being drawn by the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. I'm not running from slavery, right? Yeah. Listen, think about this, people. Like when, when, when the Israelites were in Egypt, right? And, and Moses is going, dudes, let's get out of here. Most of them were just going to work every day, making bricks. Yeah. seriously yeah. like stop pretending like this is some sort of mass uprising it wasn't it was moses and aaron going into pharaoh and everybody else is going up oh, another day making bricks so they're making bricks making bricks making bricks they finally come to the hey we can get out of here and guess what people here's the bad freaking news a week out of being slaves listen a week out of being slaves they get angry at moses and aaron for taking them into the desert now, by the way, they're being delivered Krispy Kreme donuts every morning, and there's filet of, of, of you know, chicken nuggets, Chick-fil-A, dropping out of the sky every night. They're being cared for, and they long for the slavery of Egypt just a week earlier. I wish I was making this up. I know. Right? Freedom is a siren of destruction. Liberty, liberty is the illumination of the path that calls us forward. And we're not taking the baggage of what we left behind. We're actually walking into the light of what's in front of us. The, the, That's why the light of liberty was the metaphor that was with us for 800 years. And in 17 and 1800s, we got rid of the term light of liberty. And we started talking about freedom. And we wonder why we're enslaved people. We put the manacles on ourselves. And since we put them on ourselves, we can take them off. That's exactly it right there. There's, there's a principle of what we behold, we become. Yeah. And if our understanding of freedom is I get to run from something, yep. I'm not beholding liberty. Yes. I'm running from the thing I don't want, yep. but that's what I'm beholding. Yeah. And so you don't really get into the place of transformation and now I don't get out of the cave. No. I'm just still fighting no. the shadows. Yeah. And and all I'm ever doing is I'm actually arguing on the metaphysics of shadows. Woohoo. There you go, people. <laughs> this is Wizard of Oz meets Hegelian master slave dialectic. Seriously. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Nuggets and crispy cream. Come on, baby. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, listen, if if it's good enough for Fauci to induce people with it, you know, to get a shot, why don't we use it? Why aren't we using Chick-fil-A and Krispy Kreme to freaking go, hey, 
How about go into the wilderness and stop being slaves? Well, this is this is incredible. Let's go back to your sunrise piece because this is it's been on my mind since you said it, and it's that what you were talking about the creation of energy. Yeah. But you hit on a couple key things. It was the enjoyment and the the joy, and it was fellowship. Yep. That's principle to scripture. Absolutely. And yet we, and yet we walk. I talked about it in fact last night. It's like God didn't give us humor to just wander around and be morose. Yeah. There is a joy in everything we should be feeling. And as we do that, we literally detach from this matrix of crazy that we're in right now. Listen, fear is the ultimate manacle that's keeping us at the cave wall. I mean, we need to call it what it is. And the spirit of fear is by definition, the essence of evil. There is, there is no fear in the light. There is no fear in good. Fear is in fact, the agency of evil. So, if, if what we do is we realize that in the conversation I had about the sunrise, this is the oldest principle. I mean, Jesus said it, when two or three are gathered in my name, right? When two or three are gathered, what happens in the midst? Now, what is he saying when he's in the midst of two or three gathered together? What he's saying is that by virtue of the communion of fellowship of these people, he's not saying when, when a pastor and a this and a that, like he didn't say who the two or three were. He just said, when two or three are gathered, then I am in their midst. Well, what does that mean? That means that the energy of all of the universe, the energy that created the heavens and the earth, that energy is present when two or three are together. And we pretend like somehow or another, the scientific revolution said, oh, no, 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 no. Matter and energy are all fixed. Matter and energy can't be created or destroyed. That's not true. We have a truth, people. We've been... We've been blind to it. And the truth is that when we sit or when we work together or when we exercise together or when we fellowship together, what we're doing is we're actually invoking a creative energy that says that by assembly, we have just created fusion reaction, people. You know, we can chase billions and trillions of dollars trying to make a fusion reaction or we can do something simple like as off as you eat the bread and drink the cup, freaking do it together. Wow. That's, that's profound. Oh, that's, all right, Brad, I'm going to throw that one to you. Let's go. I got to tell you um, just the last 24 hours, just hanging out with David and talking about stuff. And it's like your brain just looks at things different. I, I would love for you to share with Scott just a little bit of when we were looking at the trees yeah. And you're talking about the color green because that, that, that shifted everything for me. There's and, and, and I, let's get into the whole idolatry worship thing. Oh, you want to drop I, that? I, bomb? I do. I do. I do. <laughs> oh, absolutely. This, let's this, go. This would be awful. Well, you got to set it up because I, I gave you a sucker punch last night. You weren't expecting. No, I know. Last, <laughs> last, no, last night, he, he, we're having this wonderful conversation. I know this man knows Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I, I know that. But he's got a wonderful precision of language that just barbecues, roasts, and lasts um, <laughs> sacred cows. And he was talking about last night, like one of the real problems is our idolatry of Jesus. And I'm sitting there going like, okay, you just got yourself disinvited from every church I know. Because I don't know anyone that can kind of slice through that. So I was listening to him last night, and I'm like, I think I got half of what he said. And then I was, I was thinking about it most like, and then this morning he kind of sets it up and he kind of unpacks it a little more, but the way you, the way I finally went, Oh my gosh, the light came on. Yeah. 
is when we were talking about looking outside and yeah. it's like, what is it that you see? Yeah. So, so, so what I was doing was, I, and, and I'll get to the idolatry piece, um, but, but the idolatry thing. So let's just remember idolatry is an important word. We don't talk about and we have to talk about it. So it's uncomfortable, but we have to talk about it. Idolatry is when you make the mistake of looking at an object and thinking that you actually understand its essence. Right. That's the whole mandate, right? The whole mandate that came off the mountain was thou shalt have no graven images. What's the problem with a graven image? The problem is that you mistake the image for the essence. Because the essence of God, the essence of the created is in everything. And the minute you say, oh, it's the crucifix. Oh, it's the idol. Oh, it's the Virgin Mary. Oh, it's the whatever. Whatever you've decided you're venerating, you have now taken the infinite of the divine and you've put it into but it's this thing and we were instructed at the beginning of creation never to do that and we've done nothing but it since so that's my problem with the idolatry but let's talk about it so so i i asked brad and his family this morning at breakfast i said you know what's the color of the leaf now that's a trick question and the reason it's we, a trick we, question we, we all failed is because <laughs> the only color a leaf is and let's and we have to go slow on this one. The only color a leaf is is everything but green. Green is the frequency of light it reflects away. So a leaf is not green. A leaf invites us to consider its reflected non-essence as an invitation to explore its essence. What about a leaf is in fact sending information to us to say, I'm sending you my reflected non-essence to invite you to consider what I really am. Okay, then, then talk about the frequency. Thing, yeah, that's I the will. thing that blew me so, away. So, so inside of neurophysiology, we have this interesting paradox, which is everything we think we perceive is only the reflected non-essence of reality. Reality absorbs everything except the thing we actually perceive. And our view of perception is hijacked by neurophysiology because what happens is the things that allow us to sense, sight, sound, taste, touch, all of the things that allow us to sense are reflexes. And a reflex goes through a stimulation phase, but then goes through what's called a refractory phase when the reflex has to recharge itself. Like the sinus rhythm of your heart. Yeah, like goes the up. pattern of your heart wave. Mm -hmm. But that negative inflection, that down spike, and then the negative inflection is a period in time in which nothing else can be perceived because you actually literally cannot multiply stimulate a reflex. It has to be stimulated, then it has to go through this refractory recovery. period. And in that refractory recovery period, any stimulus that happens during that period cannot be detected at all. And that's dangerous because in that period, we are blind to the energy that can, in fact, and often does insert itself into our consciousness. And we are not perceiving it because we are actually tricked by our perception rather than tuning into the frequency of our consciousness. 
And this is where I said we've got an idolatry problem when we talk about Jesus. Jesus was, in fact, constantly telling him, his audiences, his disciples, he was constantly saying, hey, guys, I'm showing you what you have the capability to do. In fact, he went further than that. He said, and you have the capability to even do more. That's what Jesus said. What his disciples saw were magic tricks. Water into wine, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, all the stuff. And what they saw was not what they saw. They saw what they decided they could not do. You know what we don't have? We don't have the gospel that says, and Jesus pooped. <laughs> now, the reason we don't have the gospel account of Jesus poop after he had some bad fish at Cana of Galilee was because that's a normal thing. And we I can do that. I poop. He pooped. I do that. So we're not going to bother with John, you know, 7, right that one 22, now. and Jesus pooped. We don't have that because what we record are the things that are, in fact, the non-essence. We record the things that set him apart. And his whole job, by the way, even after the resurrection, he's going, dudes, you still don't see me. You don't see me because what you're doing is you're seeing the tricks. You're seeing the magic show. You're not seeing the incarnation of a gift where the father said, hey, these people don't understand I love them. So I'm going to send you down to show what love is, and you're going to live it. You're going to experience it. And all that, and then Jesus is sitting there going, Are you serious? I could do all of the miracles, and you still wouldn't get it. Well, it, it, we, we get lost on the Trinity, and we don't recognize Jesus came as a son yeah. to reveal to us how we could relate to the Father. Right. It, 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 it's not about the, 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 the theology we, quote, derive from it and then go like, oh, wow, isn't that a cool doctrine? It's more like he's showing us how to live. Correct. And he's inviting us into that moment. What well, was so powerful when you said, hey, you know, what color are the leaves? And I'm going like, well, gee, that's a real tough one. They're green. It's like, no, that's the non-essence. I went, what? Stop that. So when yeah. I, what, and, and then, then, you, then what you talked about, it's like, wait a minute. This is a moment that if you would not, if you would not lock in, yeah. Oh, the leaf is green, right? And then, 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 then yeah, well, suffer I'll, through the, the the down cycle of I'm not getting any of the others. You said it was a trigger, yeah. All, all, all it's, it's, it's a decoy that actually allows you, and all you have to do, by the way, this is a simple thing to do. Every time you think you perceive a thing, stop, like literally, cognitively stop and go. Okay, that thing invited me to consider. To really look. To consider. The Greek term for it was gnosis. To do a deep exploration of the essence of a thing. You know, the Greeks had two beautiful words for, for knowledge. Eidos and, and, and gnosis. And eidos was the appearance of things. It's the decoy. It's the thing that gets your attention. It's the thing that distracts you from the, whatever you were doing. You were doing a thing and then all of a sudden, boom, I said something that got my attention. Eidos was to get your attention. Gnosis was the invitation to do a deep, considered examination. And we make the mistake of thinking that our world is described by our 
ADOs drive-by shootings. Oh, I think I see this. I think I see this. I think I see this. And the only thing you ever see or perceive, the only thing you ever see or perceive is the reflected non-essence of reality. And it's an invitation to step into the spirit, into the essence, into the created order and say, what am I being seen? What am I being shown? What am I being invited to experience? Listen, we make the mistake of thinking that somehow or another, you know, Moses was walking through the the, the bush and, and, and the wilderness and, and there was a bush on fire and it wasn't being consumed. And, and in our brain, we have this like Marvel comic version of a, a bush that was on fire. It, listen, whether it was on fire or not is irrelevant. Here's the point. It could have been just a really bright red bush. I don't know what it was. The point was that he was doing a thing, right? He was doing a thing, which was just shepherding, walking along, doing shepherdy things, you know, smelling the freaking lanolin of rainy wool, whatever he was doing. And then all of a sudden, there's a thing that got his attention. We have these stories, and unfortunately, we don't teach them because these are teaching moments to go when it's the burning bush, when it's the wind or the still small voice, when it's the rainbow, when it's the dove with an olive branch, when it's all these things. The thing is not the point. The thing is there to get our attention to invite us into dialogue with and invite us into examination of and invite us into fellowship with the wisdom that's trying to get our attention. We read the Bible and eventually the Bible reads us. Something was given to me a long time ago, which I think is very apropos here. It's also so tied in with with Luke, or I'm sorry, John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, one, the one who believes in me. Uh, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works will he do. That is really a phenomenal point you're making because something I brought out a while back, Brad and I have also talked about this. In In the Catholic church, they keep Jesus pinned on the cross, very much like you'd put right. a lion's head on your wall after slaying it in yeah. Africa. And it's it's the fixation on the, the, the crucifixion itself that keeps you locked in the moment that doesn't allow you to see the greatness of what he was beyond the physical body of the man. He was God's son. So this is really a profound yeah. insight. It's fantastic, David. Yeah, so, so, so think about that for a minute, and then let's, let's do the very uncomfortable historical um, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the room that nobody likes to talk about. The reason why the Catholic church is willing to have the crucifix as its idol is because it was Rome that established the doctrine of the death of Christ. Listen, Christ was, is, and is to come. There, there, there is no Roman murder that disrupted the constant reality life, the him. constant reality of Jesus. The reason why the Roman church decided that you want to have the crucifix in the front of the church is because they know that Rome murdered Jesus. And let's stop pretending like this is actually some sort of Oh, it's kind of metaphysical. There were cherubs and angels and, you know, somebody playing a harp and somebody playing some sort of, you know, dirge. It was murder. You call it what it is. We had a Roman, a Roman leader in the form of Pontius Pilate 
who's actually bartering for political favor. He says, I can release one of two prisoners. You can either have Jesus or you can have Barabbas. He was not making some sort of evangelical Christian made for, you know, primetime Hollywood nonsense. This is not a Mel Gibson movie moment. This is a murder. And it's a murder for political favor. And it actually records the fact that it was a murder for political favor in the gospel itself. The only reason why you would put a bleeding Christ on a crucifix at the front of your church is to create the cognitive dissonance that says, don't look at the fact that Rome, the thing that's giving you this religion, was Rome, the thing that gave you this murder. This is no different than Anthony Fauci saying you can be an asymptomatic spreader. Good point. I'm going to take something objectively, objectively false, which is you're healthy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you that by virtue of being healthy, you are at risk. The cognitive (laughs) dissonance of that is so absolutely messed up. And listen, it's not surprising that Fauci was, in fact, trained by the Catholic Church whose mascot at his high school were the Crusaders, and not just any Crusaders, the Crusaders of Pope Innocent III, the one who sent, are you ready for this? The Children's Crusade to the death and genocide of children across Europe and began the Dark Ages. We've got to stop pretending like these things are not orchestrated and, and architected. They are, in fact, the same thing. When the Roman Empire decides that it's acceptable to kill children, and Mm. when we call that public health, we are no different from 1213 when we went across Europe and sent children to their death Mm. in the Children's Crusade. Mm. You kind of linked a whole number of things, and it's going to bring us from this connectivity of Rome to present day, which, as you said, it is we're still dealing with Rome, which now takes us back where we began much of this, which is this connectivity of the corporations that still exist. If they still exist, that means that our government is basically the charade, including the seat of the presidency, that we're owned by a corporation. No question. So can can you dig down on some of that? Yeah, well, listen, I mean, the, 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 the illusion of our Republican form of government, which we like to pretend exists, is an illusion. What we have never been able to do is we've never been able to resolve the fact that as much as we want to call ourselves a democracy, as much as we want to call ourselves some sort of representation of government, the fact of the matter is the three branches of government that exist allegedly are in fact controlled ultimately by corporate patronage. They always have been, and that is an always statement. We have never had a free and fair, transparent election where the merits of the men or women standing for election were the basis of the public decision, ever. And and I remind people that that you know, listen, let's let's start with something stupid like the electoral college. Seriously, like that made sense when what? When we had um, the the you know stagecoaches and 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 horse riding and 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 these ridiculous things where we had these these representational agents that somebody from Tulsa Oklahoma had to ride across you know the terrain to get to a place to go how did how did you know Oklahoma My vote well 
Well, listen, I mean, if you think that those people never were manipulated, you've got your head where it doesn't belong. Right. The fact of the matter is the reason why we built the system was because we had this notion that we could entrust to a, an intermediary our democracy. People, <clears throat> let's 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 get really clear. We've never elected a head of state in this country. Never. We've never elected a head of state in this country where the people did the election. It was always pre-selected. Always pre-selected. Yep. Agreed. So, you know, did did we really did, did does anybody really believe that John McCain was sitting there going out of all the people in the world that I'd love to run with? Yeah, let's go ahead and take Sarah Palin. Do you think that that actually happened? Are you absolutely naive enough to think that out of all the people that possibly could have been selected, a naval aviator? Let's just call it what it is, like a naval lady would would put together a short list and go on, yeah, Sarah, yeah, that's who I want. Do you think, do you think that, that, I don't know, that Hillary Clinton would ever be on the top of anybody's list as a leader of the free world, ever? No. Like, and I don't care what, what side of the aisle you're on. She is not an executive, Period. So why would you give her the role of a chief executive? That would be as dumb as giving a chief executive role to, I don't know, somebody who has no executive ability. I had a, I had a great conversation with Jimmy Carter years ago. And Jimmy Carter is an interesting dude. He was a great ex-president, terrible president. And I, and I actually had a conversation with him. And I said, my assessment, gloves off assessment, is that um, your problem was you were a philosopher president rather than an executive president. And he goes, you, you got to unpack that. I don't know exactly what you mean. I said, well, here's what I mean. I said, you set out a set of values and ideology. And you said, this is what I think America should be. At. This is what I think people should rise to their higher angels. This is what I think that we should have and we should expect out of being American. And I said, the beautiful thing is most of the picture you painted was actually pretty good. The problem was the people you surrounded yourself with, Nothing. your lieutenants, your, your, your advisors, were not ideologically aligned. They were power hungry. And so what they did was they actually go, oh, we're going to play our game because you're not watching the shop. And since the buck didn't stop with you, the bucks ran wild. And it was funny because he looked at me, he goes, you know what? That's probably a very fair assessment. Mm. Now, here's the problem. The problem is we forget that the executive branch is supposed to be where the courageous leadership is defined. That's where the painful decisions of mm. the executive, the one who has to make the tough call, like what we should be doing right now. We've got six years, people, and this is Joseph speaking to you from Egypt right now, House of Pharaoh. We've got six years until Social Security is bankrupt mm. by their own admission. You know what Joe Biden did? A couple months ago, he increased Social Security benefits, despite the fact that in writing, the Social Security Administration said, if you want Social Security to last until 2030, not last, just last until 2030, you had to cut benefits by 15% this year, and you had to raise the Social Security tax by 18%. And what he did was the he house emptied the coffers 
faster. We have six years from now, mark my words, and by the way, I'm glad this is recorded because one day we're going to sit back and go, holy cow, (laughs) He, he nailed it. Six years from now, the Social Security Administration is functionally bankrupt, meaning that 86 million, listen carefully, 86 million people who thought they were going to be able to retire are not going to be able to retire. 86 million people are going to actually count on a thing that's not there. Now, we have six years between now and then. You know what we could be doing? We could be doing what Joseph did in Egypt. Use the years of plenty to get ready for the years of famine. Our current president and our current congressional elected leadership have done what? They've said, let's go ahead and drain the storehouses faster. So what we do is we accelerate ourselves into a crisis that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not kidding when I say this, we're talking about people dying in this country of malnutrition and starvation, and we could avoid it today if we had leadership. But that goes back to mm-hmm. the power of the individual. And I think this is something, you know, and, and I, I advocate heavily, David, for this power of resetting your home and resetting the home as the sovereign space, starting with God in the center. Exactly and then right. that includes gardening, getting yourself separated from the corporate yoke, et cetera, et cetera. There's seven pillars of that. And I, I yep. believe truly what you said is absolutely where we have to be or we will not survive. I mean, that's we're at yep. that cusp. So when we talk about we start looking at this moment of the great awakening, which I, I often say there's two levels of it. There's the knowledge and then there's the spiritual deeper awakening of who we really are, the true essence of God. Yep. How do you see that playing in with this massive global cabal that seems to have its fingers and tendrils and everything, as Brad said earlier, the true puppet masters? You know what I love? And I, I gave a presentation at the Church of Glad Tidings in Yuba City. It's one of actually my favorite um, you gotta, you gotta hijack it. Dave Bryan would be happy to give it to you, Scott, and you could rebroadcast it. But I, 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 um, I unpacked the anatomy of evil and I did it because mm-hmm. it's important for us to see how simple this thing is. If we go back to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, which is actually, um, more appropriately described as Jesus's gift to us to see the anatomy of evil. And if we called it that, when we actually wrote it in the Bible, we'd actually come out a lot better than the story we tell. But let's unpack it for a minute. Evil always does the same three alchemical trades. The first one is the stones to bread trade. It takes a thing in relative abundance, stones, and says you need to make something that's valuable to you. So you actually take the the created order and you turn it into something that is defined by your lack or your desire or your need. That's evil's first trick. By the way, evil always uses that trick to take you off your path. Take a thing that's in relative abundance, turn it into you need to define your scarcity and try to solve for your scarcity. That's evil's first trick. The second trick is I'm going to deprive you of fellowship. I'm going to deprive you of community. I'm going to deprive you of connection in exchange for technology. And evil will always do that. In Jesus' story, what was that? It was, I'm going to take you to the highest spire in the temple. I'm going to tell you to throw yourself off. And I'm going to rely on the technology of angels to catch you. 
Evil always uses that trick. It always takes us to a place where it says, I'm going to take you out of your fellowship. I'm going to take you out of your organic connection, and I'm going to put you away and let technology intermediate a thing for you. That's always the second trick of evil. And the third trick is the ultimate defiling of sacred essence. What was that in Jesus' case? I'm going to take you to the highest mountain. I'm going to show you the kingdoms of the world. And I'm going to say, if all you do is bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. But here's the problem. The problem is, if Jesus ever knelt in the face of evil, Jesus' essence would be permanently defiled. Therefore, Jesus would not be able to access the kingdoms of the world. Listen, if you think that trading your genetics for an airline ticket is worth getting a shot, you're taking that third deal. You will not be the thing showing up on the beach in Cancun. You will not be the thing showing up at the Eiffel Tower. You won't be you because you will have defiled your essence to get a thing. That's the third alchemical trick of evil. Now, why am I telling you that? Because the beautiful thing, Scott, is we have the ability to recognize evil on its face and realize that there is no trade ever worth defiling the sacred created order. Never. And what we can easily do is we can easily start teaching ourselves, helping build our discernment, helping build our acuity to realize that we have the ability to know that evil will always use those three tricks. And every time we see those tricks, every time we see them, we can simply walk away. Just walk away. All of them are predicated on inducing a sense of fear and suggesting a lack that if I'll do this, then I'll, then I'll get that supply as opposed to understanding. It's like, you said I wake up with the with the light and I want to go out and enjoy the, the the sunshine. Yeah, and you're sitting there just bringing your essence to the created order. Right, and then that's where you that's your starting point. That's where day. I start every day. I start every single day with my face exposed to the light. You know what that is? That is actually a recognition that I am part of the creation. That's fantastic. I, I, I absolutely love that, both ritual and metaphor right there. That's that's. Uh... It's interesting at times like the times we're living in right now to pretend like we have to have some sort of elaborate practice. Like we have to, you know, we have to have the 12 point plan for, you know, our survival bunker and we have to have the 14 point plan for what we don't. Don't forget the Cantuna, Listen, please. The people, yeah, exactly. Cantuna. But 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 how about this? How about this? How about we go back naked into the garden? I mean, seriously, how about how about we go back? How about what we do is we realize that, you know what? For a long time, humanity has lost its way. It's pursued the idolatry of things. It's decided to separate itself. It's built stories and narratives that have told stories of brokenness, of shame, of guilt, of all of those things. We've told those stories. God did not tell those stories. We told them. And we have the ability to have the humility of going, oh, hold on a minute. You mean I could start my day with something simple like having gratitude for the sunrise? How about that? How about something that, yeah, that, that complicated right there? Holy cow. You mean, that, you mean you could actually connect yourself with the divine? You could actually say, hey, you know what? I don't know. You know what? I don't know. I don't know sitting here right now. I don't know whether. 
the sun actually rises or I actually get the sun to shine. I don't even know. Because you know what? It doesn't matter in a world where you see yourself as part of the whole. Like nobody needs credit. Like the sun's not going, oh, I'm shining on Dave. Oh, no, it doesn't. Because the sun's shining. But you know what the sun is receiving? It's receiving honor and gratitude. And, and it's receiving an energy that goes, hey, that crazy bald guy showed up for me again. Like the sun's getting something. And, and, and why are we naive enough to think that those things don't matter? Right? No, I, I, I know what was, Scott, what was so fantastic, we're, we're sitting down at dinner last night and, and David has just some of the most marvelous adventures of stories. And I'm sitting there listening to them and I'm, I'm looking at my daughter and I'm looking at my daughter's understanding of the world around her just being stunning it's fantastic and it's like you know it's like she's i'm seeing her she looked at me and she just kind of said real quickly dad there is no spoon <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's like it's good could, could would you share yeah. that little thing where you talked about at, at five years old where you put a boundary oh yeah so there's a cool story in 1972 a bunch of national geographic people were um were over in papua new guinea uh with with uh margaret mead and uh, came back to Southern California, and I was living down there at the time. And and they had things called travelogues, which is where you know once upon a time before there were you know all the internets and everything else. Um, what would happen is people would go on journeys, and then they'd go to cities, and they'd have these slideshows, and you'd go and sit, and you know you'd hear about the world. So we were at the Griffith Park Observatory. We were actually watching a, a, a travel presentation by these National Geographic um, uh, anthropologists, and they were they were showing their pictures of Papua New Guinea and they showed one slide and it was a really cool slide, Scott, because it was like a Dr. Seuss drawing. It was a mountain that literally looked like a, a witch's hat, kind of a whip, whip. And it was a and little pointy over. hat and a little bit of a lean at the top, which I thought was kind of cool. It looked Dr. Seuss-like. The reason why I say Dr. Seuss is because down in the left side of the image was this massive, massive rainforest tree, bright yellow against the canopy of green trees and the and the tree was yellow like cartoon yellow like not a real yellow it was amazing so in 1972 i remember as a five-year-old looking at that image and thinking man that is like that that's like so far away that's like another world that's like a dr seuss world that's that's so beyond anything i will ever experience that's when i was five fast forward to 2005 or six I'm going up to the Kongi, which is the first, it was a tribe in Papua New Guinea that had very minimal contact with any part of the outside world, never contact with a person looking like me. Um, so I was asked to go up there and work with this particular tribe because there was a mining company that was trying to dislocate some of their sacred lands. And so they asked me to come and help intervene, which I did. But here's the interesting thing. We're going up the road, and I call it a road, it was kind of a path in the rainforest. And we get up to the top of this ridge and sitting in front of me, Scott, was that image. Wow. The mountain going like that, the yellow tree off to the left. And I told my dear sister, my beautiful friend, Teresa Eric, I said, stop the car. And she goes, why? And I said, I want to walk through the edge of my dream. Nice. I got out of the Land Rover. I walked for the next 30 minutes, bawling, baptizing myself with tears. And inside of those tears, Scott, I realized 
that the one limitation I had ever imposed on my life, I had imposed at five years of age. Because you told yourself you couldn't. I told myself there was a too far away. And it was such a beautiful healing moment to walk for those 30 minutes, drenched in tears, recognizing that I had placed upon myself the defilement of a world that was organized and created without limitations. I had put them there and it was mine to walk through the edge of them and actually wash that energy out of my body. And I sobbed and I cried and I walked for 30 minutes and I had the best time because then I interacted with this tribe. And what I didn't tell you last night, hanging in my house, if you ever come, by the way, both of you, and for that matter, anybody listen to this, you're welcome to my house. <laughs> my house is a freaking amazing place. It's got like artifacts from all over the world. It's really cool. But there's an artifact. Look out, you're going to get flooded. <laughs> hey, that's, that's cool, man. I love to cook and, and I'll freaking make a feast and you'll have a great time. But, but hanging in my house, there's a thing called a billum. It's a woven basket. And what they say, this, this tribe says that when, you, when, you're being, when you're being invited into the tribe, you have to expose yourself to the woodland spirits because there's spirits in the forest, okay? So they said, so what you do is you get this, this woven basket. And what you're supposed to do is put the basket around your head and it hangs on your back and then you walk through the forest. And inside of the bag, you put totems of things that, that the elders have decided the spirits need to know about you. So maybe it's a little carving of a thing or maybe it's a piece of fruit or whatever. They put them in the bag so that when you're going through the woods, this is a way for the woodland spirits to know that you're showing them something about you that, that, that's important. So anyway, the elders are sitting there and they're going, what do we need to put in Dave's bag? You know what's funny? Scott, <laughs> Brad, everybody. They're sitting there trying to figure out what to put in my bag. And they finally looked and said, you know what? He doesn't need anything in his bag. And so I got to walk through my initiation walk with an empty bag. And that empty bag is still hanging on my wall. But that's, that's, and, that's and, huge, and, and what I love about it is their, their cosmology. Like, I don't even try to pretend to understand it. But their cosmology was, we got to make sure that, you know, the spirit world knows what, like, what is the baggage you're carrying that's, like, inside of and the fact is they decided that I need to walk through the forest with an empty bag because the spirits are going to see all of me. That's fantastic. That's awesome. And, and I'll tell you what, had I not had that five-year-old, then 2005, had I not had that purge, I would have had something in my bag, which was the, the constraint I had put on my life. But interestingly enough, by my going through the veil of my own limitations. I actually had a purification that I allowed to happen where grace poured across my life and said, Hey, dude, don't pack anything in your bag. You are what I created. You are what I need. I don't need your story. I don't need your limitation. I don't need your bravado. I don't need anything else. I need you to show up as you. And you know yeah. what? Woodland spirits were able to go, I'm down with that hey, guy. Look at him. And <laughs> I did my spirit walk. And apparently the spirits <laughs> were cool because I got to make a difference. And, and thankfully, in that particular case, there are hundreds of people who are now alive 
who were going to be killed by a mining company. So there it is. You know, what? so, so what, what I got as a gift from last night, just, just, just the time talking fellowship and over a meal is the, the incredible breadth of things that you were exposed to and how you didn't, you showed up fully present to each one of those things, just as who you were. And you didn't try to control it. No, you didn't let fear dictate what it was. And therefore you were able in that moment to respond to what actually was the real need. And, and, and what, what deepened this morning is just going like, okay, I'm looking at a tree. It, it looks green to me, but as opposed to stopping there at the superficial moment, yeah. what I took away from breakfast was it's an invitation to, to just park and go, you've got my attention. What am I supposed to see? What else is there that's in the essence of this moment? And I just sat there going like, I mean, you and I talked about this, Scott. You know, it's like you were like, dude, I freaking hate the, the Matrix movie. And, and it's like I totally understood <laughs> why that, that got your gourd, because the things you were bringing up, I'm going like, no, dude, you got it. You saw it. I, I agree with you. But in the moment that I saw it, I saw an alchemy of evil. Yeah where it's like they always force us into the binary things and they control both sides. Yep. And if I take the bait of living in their, their scarcity controlled, both only options, when they reduce me to the moment of it's a this or a that, and I've got to make a judgment call on a this or a that, I'm taking that bait moment yep. of going like, oh, the, the leaf is green, as opposed to recognizing the leaf, is, the leaf is anything but green. It's only right. reflecting a green back to me. And I'm not seeing the other full essence of what it actually is. I'm only seeing that reflected superficial element. And, and I love this. I really love this story. And I keep going, Brad. I mean, the, the, I just sat there going like, okay, wait a minute. It's like, because you and I were talking about it. I was down in um, Sandestin and it's, uh, they, they filmed the, the Truman Show. Yep. near there, yep. little seaside village. And I, I knew we were supposed to go down there. And I, and I felt like when we were down there, it was like the Lord showed me the, the door out. And it was like, the world's always trying to squeeze you into its mold and get you to play the part it wants you to yep. play. And I'm listening to the voice of Christ of, as opposed to actually responding to the voice. Yeah. Of, of, of my creator yeah. saying, uh-uh, step out of that controlled environment of the enemy and step into the unknown. You don't get to control it, but you're capable of responding because I know who you are. I know what I've put in you. And if I've set you here, you are what I need to respond exactly. to that Exactly. Exactly. And I don't have to do it with with the limitations of my fear and my scarcity and the and, and then my worry of, oh, no, what if? Well, yeah. And, and worse than that is the gospel of the new age enlightenment is to transcend and escape. That's true. Yes. And the gospel gospel is to stay to in up. the must messiness of the now bring light into that messiness and watch the light propagate. That's the gospel, right? And, and, and what the gospel of new age is, is how do I get my 
my my voyeuristic escapism how do i get into that transcending the blah 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 whatever you define as the blah 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 the point is that the gospel is about not leaving it's about staying in the messiness let your light shine not from some sort of astral plane but let your light shine like when you're at freaking whole foods like let your light shine when when you're on the highway let your light shine you know when you're at a school board meeting let your light shine when you actually are standing up for the rights of people yeah. who are, that's that's where the light belongs freaking this nonsense i mean the deepak chopra turn into a rainbow body and sublimated freaking <laughs> bs is ridiculous the the message of the gospel is stay messy well, let me let me just relate a quick story here, David, because I think I mean it's just so much can relate to your experience with the tribe, and one of the things that I, I just so respect with that is you kept to your as you not be tried to become them. Yeah. So I was this is two thousand ten, I believe. I was uh, or two thousand actually a little later, about two thousand eleven. I was put onto a, a task to go up to Kunduz, which was north of Kandahar. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, north of, of Kabul. And we hadn't been in this area since the Germans decided to carpet bomb a village because over a no. gas truck. And it's literally the truth. They, and the German commanders were, when McChrystal found them, they were drinking and partying, clinking glasses that they had just carpet bombed a bunch of innocent civilians. So I went up on my own, just my interpreter and myself. And we stayed with an old Mujahideen uh, who had worked with the CIA. And with that, we negotiated to have a shura, which as you know, is a, is the kind of a town hall meeting, yeah. but with much more significance with the Taliban that had actually killed his son, which is a rather profound meeting. Yep. And there was a little bit of tension going into that. So we spent um, the week together and we, we broke bread every day. And we ended up having the meeting. There's just a couple, two segues on this that are kind of important. One is that when we got to this shura and I'm listening to this through interpreter and I, I knew some Pashtun and it was pretty clear that we were having a conflict of understanding reality because there was an intense argument going on between the two, but they were both saying the same thing, right. which was about trust. And I asked a question. I said, has anyone ever explained to you how democracy works? And there was a total silence and there basically was no. And I then turned to each and I said, you understand that our motive is actually to get you both involved in the governance. We just want to have you stop blowing each other up. That'd be a nice thing. Yeah. Right. So we left with that with a, just an unbelievable coming together, which was pretty stunning. And so as we got ready to leave, which was, we had to, I was leaving the next day or and a half later and had to leave early because the governor had decided he was going to kidnap me. So I had to get out of there kind of quick. I was having breakfast with the old Mujahideen. And as he, he's, we sat there and broke bread in, in his room. And he said to me, he says, I trust you like my son. I said, okay, I'm deeply honored, but I yeah. said, I'd just like to know why. And he says, because for one week, he says, I fed you you've eaten everything and you have never questioned what I've put before you or if I would have poisoned you. Yeah. And I said, but, and so my response was, well, why would I? Because I've come here with good faith and under 
under that expectation. But it's to your to my point in, and to your story is that when we let go and we simply walk in that space to accept that God carries us and we're there for that reason. Yep. There is no fear, and the power of that moment is greater, as you were talking about, to the point of the leaf. It's so much greater than what we see. I, okay. There was an old Mujahideen before us, but that meant nothing. He and I were just two people telling amazing stories, sharing some really interesting food, and some of it not my favorite, but nonetheless, interesting experience. And in all of that, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the coming together had something much greater than all of us that res- resonated and actually kept peace for another year or so yeah. between them just because they had finally come together and just listened. So that's just, it's a really, I love the story you put there because you allowed yourself just to be there, not to well, you're there, you're a tribe, I'm going to worry about your ancestral teachings, it's not Christian or whatever, it's just to be there with them. Yep. That's a fantastic story. Well, hey, listen, I mean, I, I think it's it, it's fun for us to realize that, you know, we were given we were given in Acts the story of, you know, the sheet lowered down from heaven, filled with unclean animals. Mm-hmm. And the instruction is, get up, kill and eat. And I was like, ah, no, it's unclean. It's like, nah, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. What I've cleansed. And, and, and Scott, your story, my story, so many times, I think, I think that we, we, we have deprived ourselves of our own confidence in the very faith that we could have by essentially delivering our experience in these saran wrap packaged meals where we go, oh, well, we've got it all cleaned up and we know nothing has defiled this. And so, you know, as long as it happens in our church or it happens in our, you know, fellowship or whatever else, then that's okay. And, and we don't allow ourselves to have the possibility that maybe a sheet is being lowered from heaven. Yes. Yep. Right now. Oh, God. And maybe, maybe what's happening is we're being invited to say, hey, you, and by the way, I've often said, like, the judgment side of everything, it's above my pay grade. That's not what I'm here for. And I actually know that. Yeah. So, so if, if, if I can embrace the certainty I have that from the moment of creation until right now, some part of the divine order needed a bald hair, mostly bow tie wearing crazy dude, if I, if I actually can accept that, which I can, because I do. Yeah. <laughs> I can accept that. Then I can also accept that maybe I'm going to be placed in situations which were not resonant with my comfort zone because that same order needs me there. And how dare I tell that creator, hey, even dad, no, no, you gotta give it, you gotta give it to me in my, you know, my ziploc. Because you know what? They ain't Ziploc at the top of the mountain. There's freaking, you know, uh, freshwater eels and, and bamboo shoots. And um, they're, they're steamed in pig fat. And that's what you're going to eat. So freaking get up, kill and eat. I want to I I take two threads. Wealth is the shared response in that moment. Yeah, of course it is. Because it's and 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 that's 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 the door out of the control yeah. thing into showing up to what actually is. Yeah, and and we don't live there. We 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 have not been taught to think that way. Right. 
And I'm sitting here going like, okay, that's the essence of creating real wealth. It's our response to what God has set there as the creator and our fully showing up and then being able to kind of share that. That doesn't diminish you. I don't take ownership of that. That's a stewardship moment that allows something to, 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 to emerge because of the fellowship between us. Yep. That's good. That, 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 that's insane. Well, and, and let's call the BS on the official narrative of wealth. Like let's call the BS on it because, because at the exact same time that I was resolving a conflict dispute in Papua New Guinea at a place called the Sunbury Island. And you can look it up on a map. It's North of new Ireland. The exact same time I was resolving a genocide that was happening courtesy of an Australian mining company. Two miles, and you're like, I couldn't make this up, two miles off the coast while I was resolving a genocide with me just showing up like I do, you know, pants on one leg at a time, boots, shirt, that's it, just me, resolving genocide. James Cameron was two miles off the coast scoping out these islands as possible filming locations for avatar <laughs> now 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 here's the funny thing and this is a story that we all miss he was going to tell a hollywood narrative of exactly. genocide around an extractive industry that's destroying a native population two miles on the face of this earth away the actual event is happened is happening and I had the audacity to reach out to his wife and go, hey, I think he's in the neighborhood. If his film crew could actually document some of this, like the floating carcasses that were going through the water, maybe we could actually get people to pay attention to this. And the response I got back was, he's too busy researching the film. Now, the reason I'm telling you this, people, is James Cameron has a shitload more money in a bank account Right. In a bank account, he has more money and therefore you could make the 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 erroneous assumption that he has more wealth than I do. No, way. but James Cameron can only imagine the stories. He's impoverished. He can only imagine the stories I tell. Because I've actually wow. lived the Avatar movie. Wow. This is literally the sto stories are what define us. This is that's exactly right. And so, so, so we, we get trapped in the illusion of, oh, but if I had wealth, I could travel. No people, no people. That's, that's the fallacy, right? That's the devil's detail. That's that, that's that take me out of fellowship. Give me the utility of money. And that's going to give me the world. No, it will not live and live aligned to your divine purpose. And you know what? Mm. The world will be richly and abundantly open to you. Mm. Mm. So true. That's it. See, the, the other thread is the idolatry of Jesus is stopping at the superficial. Yeah. Trying to tag it and not actually entering into what the true there worship is. There you go. We, we, we've sort of told the stories in such a way that, oh, wow, that's what he does. Right. Listen, it, as, listen a, as opposed to being tractor let, beamed into that life. Yeah, let's be crashed. I mean, we've made Jesus into a Marvel comic superhero. We've made them inaccessible. We, he's, he's got a magic decoder ring. He's got a magic whatever. He was Super bit safe. by a spider. He's got something. And we've made him a Marvel comic. 
rather than embracing the possibility that his entire life, here's how you live, was about dudes. Hey, dudes, remember, remember, you've just forgotten. Just remember, in as off as you do this, remember me. He didn't say, remember my stage tricks. He didn't say, remember the miracles. He said, in as off as you eat the bread and drink the cup, remember me. That's what he said. We need to realize that that doesn't mean once a week when we get wafers and wine. It means every time we sit down to take nourishment, we are supposed to remember. Mm that he asked us to do something simple. You know, it's, it's this whole conversation is so apropos because I have been talking about three verses this week heavily in, and I have a night show called Fishers of Men and Mark 4.22, which is for nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Um, yep. Luke 10.19, behold, I have given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and yes. John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Amen. When we step away from what we are consciously making, uh, limiting ourselves to, to what we see, we are then um, truly freeing ourselves into that existence of those three scriptures, which is fantastic. You know, it's kind of, there's a reminder I have here too. Uh, you're obviously familiar with the Zen Cohen. Yeah. And there is the famous Zen Cohen, the one, the sound of one hand clapping which this whole thing has had me laughing in the back of my head about this because literally it's like, hey, stupid, watch this, whack. And that's how I always define the sound of one hand clapping. It's when the master smacks the student upside the head with yeah. the single hand and says, are you ready? And, and the best part about it is in, the, in Zen, when you, dis, when you crack the Cohen, they say it's laughter. Well, it is because yeah. it's literally like, how's that feel? And it's like, I didn't like that too much, but I see, good. Now try yeah. it again, right? I yeah, see. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what a brilliant conversation. Well, David, I want to thank you. And Mar Brad, thank you so much. We always close with a prayer. Brad, I'm going to give you the honor today, if you would, to lead us oh, in prayer. Please. Jesus, I ask that you would take each one of us deeper into showing up with you. That, that, would you help us not stop at the superficial? Would you help us not draw the premature premature conclusion of something thinking i got it when there's so much more that i'm supposed to be able to see and take in lord i ask that you take us out of the little binary matrix of the enemy's choosing where he controls both sides and gets me to be afraid of what i don't have or he tells me i need to do this so as to get this other thing that he controls god would you would you take each one of us into a place of, of real possibility of just being able to show up every mo morning and start by looking square into you and recognizing my place in the created order, that I am all that you need me to be right now, and that I'll walk and talk with you in the cool of today, and then we'll see what unfolds. God, I ask that you'd break us free from the fear, scarcity mindset, and that you'd really allow us to be vessels that can share life and create the wealth of what's there, that, 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 that you let down that sheet, that there, there is something that 
you're inhabiting that I get to participate. I ask that you would sort of lance our sacred cows and have a marvelous barbecue of what doesn't matter and bring us into what really does so that we can see what you're doing in the earth and be a part of it. God, I ask that uh, this would be more than just words to people. I ask that somehow you'd cause them to be spirit and life, and it really would yield a sense of rest and peace that I, I, I know I'm loved, and I don't have to live in fear. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you both. What a great uh, interview to have. I mean, this is this is this is just a conversation is all this was <laughs> and a great conversation. David, I hope you have a, a blessed day there with Brad. I look forward to having more conversations with you. And hopefully one day we can sit and really break bread. That'd be fantastic. We will indeed. I look forward to that, Scott. All right. Thank you both. God bless. All have right. a wonderful weekend. Bye bye now. Awesome. Well, Patriots, that was Dr. David Martin and Pastor Brad Cummings. And I, it's a, one of those interviews that um, I think it's probably best summed up by a painting that was done by Rene Marguerite. It's in a group of works called The Treachery of Images. And the painting is called Ceci ce n'est pas une pipe, which is, this is not a pipe. And it's a picture, a painting of a pipe. It's the whole principle that what we're looking at in this world, we are taking for face value and we're not looking deeper into what's around us. And we're getting caught in that. There's so much of what this fear nonsense is and the, and the COVID bit and the death shots that people are taking is they're not able to step beyond what is being told and what is being presented right before them. That all of that becomes the all-inclusive moment that the fear that self takes on a full life and in so doing represses any connection to God and any strength that they have in Christ. So that's really, I think, one of our biggest challenges as we go forward is not only for ourselves to be challenged each day to push deeper into the intimacy with our relationship in Christ and deeper into the essence of all this world. Some of these words and terms are not comfortable in this modern day because so many of them have been hijacked by a new age movement that has has no relationship with Christ and no fundamental relationship with God. But don't be distracted from some of those words in their application in our deeper relationship with Christ. That's the ultimate connection and our ultimate goal and our ultimate walk. As I said at the beginning, this is one of these interviews that you have to listen to. I've listened to it. I did the interview. I've edited the interview. I've now listened to it a third time. And there's a lot in this interview to unpack And so I'd encourage you to listen to this one again. There's a lot here. Dr. David Martin has really presented some amazing insights, both historically and in his views of scripturally, which I think are very important. This is a man who's very well rooted in scripture. And though we may not always agree on topics, the most important thing is that we listen. And then as we listen, our minds are open. Remember, we are walking within the body of Christ. And in a very simple metaphor, the foot does not see the world the same way as the nose. But literally, all together, we work as one to create the perfection that Christ brings and desires of us to be in this world. And I think that is what is so important about these broader conversations is as we expand this dialogue and we start to listen carefully to one another, God works within our heart and in so doing opens our minds and our hearts to such greater ways of being in the world because ultimately it's all about us coming together and building that bigger bridge and bigger force of agape love.
So keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. We're in a very amazing time right now, Patriots, and prayers are the center point for all that we have and all that we connect with that gives us that connection to the rock, our rock of faith. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. But our trust in him is the most important thing that we can do, and we have to trust in him deeper than ever. God has a plan, and he's got this, but I am absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt that we are an integral part of that plan, and that part of that plan as well is to raise us up and to open our eyes to give us more of the birthright and to let us grow as we should as his children. So I'll see you tonight for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer to rest to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
old evil that has waited thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples. It has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath.